0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your host and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein.
1: No more Texas Tech. Tim, we're shifting over to Aggie
0: Aggieland. I, I, that's, that's right. I can't believe in the pre-show that you insulted this man by accusing him of being from tech. I didn't. I was quick to, to correct that. He,
1: he, I actually did that before with him. For some reason, I thought Ryan Tart, who... EAG guy and good friend of Collins, right? College roommate. Uh, I thought that for whatever reason he went to tech. So I accused him in person of tech and then I just copied and pasted your questions to Joe and I saw Texas something. So I didn't edit it, but I was kind of aware of it too. I'm like, ah, oh, he caught that. Damn
0: it. <laughs> well, you know, as uh, Aggies, as Aggies go, we're quick to correct that mistake. 100%. I mean,
2: they're, they're,
1: Very different schools, right? I mean, I've got a, I've got a guess. Like to the outsider, it's like ah, just two more big schools that are good at football, kind of in the middle of nowhere. But like, really, they're very
0: different schools. They're very different schools. I think you'd be surprised at the difference in size between the two of them as well. A and M's bigger. A and M's significantly bigger.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: You know, you know, and we're fiercely loyal, like like Texas Tech grads are as well. But we're probably a little bit more famous for being that fiercely loyal indeed
1: indeed well anyways guns down today we're we're taking it over to gigam land with colin plaque colin love your story right. love love how you ended up in denver want to dive into the rigs to real estate piece understand what it's like raising a young family uh with your hand in various buckets um the very quick exit what was that 11 Months you were at a company for 11 months that went from nothing to selling for one and a half billion dollars. I yes, want to sir. dive into that a little bit too, but why don't you take us back to the beginning? Where are you from? Um, How did you get into oil and gas? And let's get to know you a little bit.
2: Yeah, so I grew up in Plano, Texas, and um, you know, right around high school times when I kind of figured out that I wanted to go into engineering math, science, it came pretty easily to me. And it was something I was always fascinated by. And I also had a, uh, a friend growing up whose dad was a petroleum engineer, always traveling the world, going to really cool places. They obviously did pretty well for themselves. You know, they had vacation homes, boats and stuff like that. So I was like, okay, this guy gets to travel and, um, you know, experience all that, but at the same time, make a good living out of it and provide yeah. for his family. That sign, was, me uh, something. sign me yeah, up. Sign me I was like, sign me up. So I want to, um,
0: I don't hear yeah. a lot of cool places in traveling oil and gas. You get to go no, to he's, places, you know, he's a big Baku fan of and places like that. Mm.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously when I say cool, I mean, it's cool for the oil field. You know, Norway, <laughs> no, okay. um, Norway, Canada, the South America, that type of thing. So uh, yeah. places, you know, growing up, growing up in Plano, Texas, places that sound cool because it's not Plano, Texas, right? <laughs> no, Are you uh,
0: Plano Senior High or Pesh or what? I went to Pesh. Okay, slang—that's yeah, Plano East for you, Jeremy. That's Everybody
1: right. knows that. Everybody
0: knows that. <laughs> so, what what got you? What so, took you to A and M then? Uh, really, you know, so uh, had an average GPA
2: out of school. You know, I didn't really apply. You know, in hindsight, really apply myself as much as I could have in high school. So, average GPA, but really good SAT score, and that's what really got me into A and did not get into UT. Um, I think, you know, Texas Tech, I got an acceptance letter before I applied there, but uh, that was a a dig. Before we were recording earlier, we were were talking about Texas Tech and kind of bashing them, but jokingly, obviously, because we have a lot of friends and colleagues from there. But yeah, so um, wound up at Texas A&M and graduated in four and a half years in petroleum engineering, and then straight out of school, went to uh, Durango, Colorado to work there for four years in the San Juan Basin. I, I have to say, like, for areas that you can end up in oil and gas in the lower forty-eight, like I've done pretty well, Denver and Durango, Colorado. In my yeah, that, you know, 10, that's yeah, that's awesome. That is a nice it's, one. Except for a eleven-month uh, stint that you referred to earlier, I did live in Midland for eleven months there, which was a fantastic experience as well.
1: Yeah, but you weren't volunteering. You know what I mean? I'm sure it was it was the right the right move for you. No, I know. I mean, if you live in certain places, other places may not be appealing. But before we go on, I want I want to talk about SATs. So you said you got a good score. Tim, do you remember what you got on your SATs?
0: Yes, I do, in fact. Yeah? I know what I got too. Are we gonna remember. do this? Are we gonna go out and just start should, throwing should out SAT numbers? Should we here? say
1: them at the same time?
0: And should sure, I lie? Do see. I
1: lie or tell you the right score?
2: <laughs> I'm trying to remember mine, ready? but yeah. I think oh, you do
1: remember yours? What do you I think I a good I'm score in the SATs? We're all gonna do it at the same time. Okay. All right. Three, two,
2: one. Oh
1: my God. You 1280 at thirteen. I got ten, eighty.
2: <laughs> I need to quit. At least, at least we're on the same scale. I think after 13, my grade, yeah. they changed the scale to 2100. So, um, you know, it's kind of like inflation today and today's dollars aren't worth what yesterday's were, you know, kids talking, Oh, I got like 1850. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that wasn't even a scale when I was there. <laughs> it wasn't even possible. So, so yeah,
1: well, quick, quick story on the SAT thing. Cause I always found this hilarious. So one of my best friends in the world, Dan Marcus, Uh, genius. He and I went to Brandeis together, but his his history with the SATs is kind of funny. So one of the gifted and talented kids, he's from New Jersey suburbs. Um, One of the programs, like they make you take the SATs when you're in like seventh grade or sixth grade or something, just to like test how far down the path you are. Anyways, he got a 1340. So when he was a sophomore, they're like, um, okay, like you did really well, you know, when you were 12. So you should come in here and take the the test because it's really good for schools, especially to get a 1600 and just get people that get that recognition. It's positive. So as a sophomore, they made him take the SATs. He's like, okay, but if you do that, then I don't need to take it next year. Cause usually juniors are required to take it. So he had a 1590. And he's like, that's it. I'm done. I don't need any anymore. Ooh. They changed the rule the next year. They're like, oh, now all juniors, even if they've taken so he got a 1600 and he said he was one of like 30 kids that went to the white house or something for like some yeah. sort of dinner. And, and basically he said like, you've never seen people with worse social skills in your
2: life <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be a fly on the wall for that dinner. meeting, uh, he's like, I'll it tell you, really what though,
0: you, you score a 1590. I would have to go back. I wouldn't say I'm not taking it again. I would have to go back if, if I'm that close and try at least.
1: But the, I don't think there was any real benefit to him. You know what I mean? Other than saying, oh, no, that it's, just pride. It. Like, it's just think-
0: pure, it's just, yeah. it'd be just pure pride for, to, to do it. I wouldn't, it doesn't, you know, let you get accepted more to Harvard. If that's where you wanted to go, it's, <laughs> I mean, he
1: didn't get it. He didn't get into Harvard because he didn't have yeah. good grades. So anyways, like the Colin Plackey story. So we, yeah, we I mean, now it's we're funny. 3D. It's
2: funny. You mentioned that I was always just really good at taking tests. And in hindsight, I didn't apply myself in high school. Like I could have, you know, um i could have been in all the ap classes and i was like no i'd rather just go get a job and make some money you know i got into a program my senior year where i was out by like 1 p.m and i was working and making money after that versus taking you know an ap accelerated uh math class and stuff like that and so when i got to texas a&m they wanted to put me on this five-year track you know they were like oh you didn't take calculus you didn't take ap physics in in high school i was like i got this just put me in it and they're like well you can take this test and if you do well on this test, then you can go uh, on the four-year track. And of course I did well on that test. And then I got my ass kicked that first nice. year. I mean, like I actually had to, you know, study for the first time in my life and uh, it was, it was insane. I mean, we were learning stuff in physics, like integrals and stuff like that, that I had never even learned. And they, they weren't teaching yet in uh, calculus at AM. So, you know, physics was ahead of calculus and I had a time of it, you know? So in hindsight, Maybe the five-year track would have been a uh, a better way to go, but um, definitely got my eyes open that that first semester.
0: That's a that is a, a nice moment when you have to kind of figure that out. Holy crap! And you got to establish your new pattern. How am I going to study for this? Where am I going to go figure out how to do this this crazy math? But man, I I can't imagine having to go through a calculus-based physics class without having taken physics or taken calculus yet. Yeah, it'd be
2: like getting into, you know, Spanish six and you haven't taken Spanish one. yet. You know? So they, they were sp- literally speaking a foreign language to me. Um, and I could not wrap my head around it for for a little while. So
1: was it Tom
2: Blassingame? No, I do have uh, some good Tom stories. I was one of the last classes. Uh, my graduating class of 2010 was one of the last ones where he actually taught and did his uh-huh. like, you know, Friday night, 12 hour test that he's famous for. And
0: Well, Colin, um, I had him. Before he was infamous and when he was just starting out teaching, I think I was in his probably third semester where he was actually teaching and we didn't have those uh, seven, eight hour tests at that point.
2: Yeah. He was just, he was testing out his cruelty on you guys. He wasn't sure how far he wasn't even wearing
0: overalls with us.
2: What? No, he didn't wear overalls.
0: He was very, very chill
1: and very supportive. Actually people like, Oh, this guy's tough and awesome. Awesome guy. Super supportive, very smart. And he gave me some very uh, apropos advice when I was showing him some of the stuff that, that we were doing from an analytics analytics perspective. And he's like, don't start thinking you can drill your own wells now, okay? I know that you <laughs> think you see what it looks like and you got these patterns. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stick to selling software. I'm like, all right. But yeah. su- super entertaining. No, super helpful. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so you finish up at, at A&M and then what, you move back to Plano? Or you do something else?
2: No, I went to, uh, straight to Southwest Colorado, Four Corners nice. area, and, and got to work immediately. So, um, graduated in what December of 2010, and by January I was I was at work. So, not really a, a transition or a gap year or anything like that. Just um, getting right after it, yeah, straight to Durango. Huh? Straight to Durango, yeah. So, I mean, beautiful country. Like I said, I really lucked out when it comes to the oil field. Uh, my first year I spent in the field watching rigs and everything. That was kind of uh, the company that I worked for. That was their program for training engineers was basically, you know, you you go and sit on a rig for three months. And after that, you get your own and you're going around and doing workovers. You're budgeting them. You're calling people out and kind of project managing all that. But at the same time, I'm working in a national forest. I'm kicking elk off the location in the mm. morning. You know, we had I have a great story where a bear broke into the doghouse, but through the skylight. So it couldn't get out. And so we just have, you know, the next morning, the, the, you man. can imagine, like, the look on the door and get away. Take- yeah, exactly. He has a, a bear that's been tracked in there for eight hours, and it drank, like, all the lanolin hand cleaner. Uh, and then there's claw <laughs> marks. All It was the most destroyed piece of equipment I've seen in the oil field. Um, bears, man. And, yeah, I mean, because uh, the issue there was this was in 30 and 4, the Carson National Forest. And whenever Durango, Farmington, Aztec, Mancus, whenever they'd have trouble bears, Guess what the Forest Service would do? They'd throw them in a truck and take them out to 30 and four. So well, we yeah. had all the delinquent asshole bears that um, got <laughs> taken out of the break city. Breaking the
0: houses, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
2: So, well, no, I mean, it was a fantastic place to work.
0: Man, what a great first yeah, job. Man. I mean, oh, I mean, that's got to be a great, was that Bill Barrett? No, this was a company uh, called
2: Energen, which sold oh. to Diamondback in two thousand. Birmingham,
1: Birmingham, Alabama. Is
2: that yeah, yeah? So uh, that was super fun getting to go back there for budget season to Birmingham. I, Great. I got to interrupt
0: here, Con. Just for the, for the second podcast in a row, he's gotten to say Birmingham, Alabama, and his his <laughs> silly accent. Our, Alabama I, accent. I,
1: I, I've got to be honest, which. Is ironically the same as my fake Texas and Louisiana accent, <laughs> Mississippi, Florida, even some places, Georgia, perhaps. Maybe not quite as slow as what I do for Tennessee, though.
0: I don't know. You just went East Texas right there. That was. Uh,
1: did, did I? I went, Tyler. No, no, well, see, it's I see. Been a yeah, while you, you are, so went Tyler. You're,
0: you're definitely missing <laughs> your accents there. He lives No, I'm this. not.
1: No, I'm not. It's going to come so, out I mean, high this week.
0: So, San Juan, I mean, the San Juan Basin is great. So all CBM, I assume it was all CBM wells, coal bed methane wells. Yeah. And, uh, and you were, what was, your, what was your role out there then? So again,
2: you know, right out of school, spent basically a year in the field watching rigs, managing that type of program. And then when I did get into the office, I was assigned a certain area and I basically handled wells in that area from cradle to grave, right? So as soon as um, the drillers were done drilling it, casing it, cementing it, it was in my we were we were called district engineers. so it wasn't production engineer. I wasn't completion like it was everything encompassed from cradle to grave. So I got to design fracs on the vertical wells, everything from production, compression, pipeline design, um, all the way to P and A. So just a really good uh, round experience, and and it, it was nice. Like in hindsight, it's single phase gas reservoir for the most part. You know, there's some tricky stuff with coal bed methane and dewatering and stuff like that, but at the same time really good place to learn um all the different like the biggest thing is not necessarily like learning how to do every single thing but understanding like how pipelines work and and their terminology versus production engineering versus completions and you you get to practice it on these uh you know pretty shallow decline low pressure gas wells
0: and then being in Durango it's it's, it's kind of nice from a social aspect just uh, hey every weekend just drive up in the mountains go hike, ski, whatever you're going to do, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Tons of days skiing. Um, everyone that I worked with, we all owned Jeeps. So we'd go camping up on, you know, the highest mountain passes you could pick. Tim's rides, jealous. Durango. Tim's jealous. Yeah. It was, it was a really great place to learn. And also, you know, working in a national for- forest, um, right out of school, it instilled in me that like, um, you know, we have a responsibility to be good yeah. stewards of the environment and everything like that. You know, sometimes in, I'm not going to throw any basins under the bus, but you know which ones I'm talking about where you go out to the field and there's spills and nothing's cleaned up and there's trash, rusty equipment everywhere. Like out here, um, you know, we really took pride in in what we did. And that kind of instilled a sense of uh, stewardship in me for the rest of my career after that.
1: Great. I mean, I'm jealous, you know, you get paid money to move somewhere like Durango, cut your teeth, right? Learn on some sort of exploratory wells where you could test some things out, which are a lot different, of course, than what you were doing when you hit the huge Permian wells, right? Which were producing, you know, a thousand plus barrels a day when they IPed. So, so, I mean, dude, Durango to Birmingham, that's got to be like four stops. Like how do you even, what is it? Oh, Durango, it to Denver? Yeah. So yeah, like- Durango,
2: Denver, Denver, Birmingham. Sometimes you had to go through Atlanta yeah. uh, in the winter time. Like if there wasn't a storm in Denver, there was a storm in Durango. It was yep it was a nightmare to travel. And, you know, we were doing that 10, 11 times a year. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 definitely gain an appreciation for uh, single stop flights and in larger airports because yeah, those small planes, like uh, forget about it. Even, even hot days in the summer, you have to think about that. Like I've been on a flight where they're like, if three people don't get off this plane, we will not clear that mountain.
0: Yeah. And so yeah.
2: like that was how they got volunteers to get off. You know, it was just, it was the dynamic of a small mountain airport.
0: I flew into Farmington once, it was one of the actually one of the, I'm sitting there looking out the window and uh you think, "Well, we got another couple minutes before we land, and suddenly there was the runway. It's up on top of a mesa, just like it just out of nowhere there's just a a flat spot it's just really cool geology out there, you know the mountains, and then you know any flat spot you could put a runway on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And those were, those were interesting flights for sure. Cause you flew on, um, uh, Great Lakes, right. Which is, a a 19 seat or, a, yeah, I think it's 19 seats, Beechcraft, no bathroom, which, um, mm. when I first went out there and flew on that, you know, I had a few beers in the Denver airport on my layover and get on the plane and look back and it's single aisle and, and no bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, this is going to be rough.
0: I think I flew out of Albuquerque to Farmington actually. And I, I'm not sure if it was Great Lakes or not, but what I do remember was the co-pilot turned around to give the safety instruction. He turned around from yeah. his chair, didn't even stand up, from his chair and gave the seat belts and the, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, so that same like, oh, trip.
2: Okay. Yeah, that same trip. There was no door between the cockpit and uh, the passenger cabin. And that same trip flying back to Denver, uh, it was just awful choppy getting into the front range. And, like, I have done a lot of flying. I um, have a few hours in an airplane as well, so I'm familiar with the alarms and what – what pilots are doing and like the sheer alarm is going off as we're coming into the front range we're getting our ass kicked in this little plane Every, everybody around me is like pale and the best thing was like the pilot turns off the alarm and that's one of those awful sounding alarms and then it goes off again and he turns around and just shuts the door so, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so like everybody's face ah. around this price it's probably mine too i don't know but uh that was yeah You're like that's good, a good experience okay. flying to the four corners man
1: yeah. You start to get, you, you start to get used to it. So, so what next, right? So you're in Durango, right? And maybe not your most traditional oil and gas city, right. Coming out of school. Um, th-
2: then where'd you go? So after that, um, around 2014, the writing was kind of on the wall that Energen had you know, purchased in 2009, uh, 10 um, this Permian asset in the yeah. Delaware. And they were trying to figure it out. It was, you know, trying to make it be a vertical play, uh, the Wolf Camp was, you know, a, a target, but really they were going after Bone Springs when it first started. And it was very clear that, like, we were competing one on one for capital for them. And you got to remember back 2010 through t- 2014, you know, oil is at least seventy dollars a barrel, sometimes upwards of one thirty and gas, you know, pretty flat two, two and two and a half, three dollars. Um, so competing with capital for them just wasn't a viable option. So the writing was on the wall that they were going to uh, probably divest that asset there in the San Juan Basin. So I wanted to get ahead of that. I also wanted an oil experience, but I, you know, moving from Durango, I could have moved from Durango to Midland with Energen and they would have accepted me with open arms, right? But I wasn't quite ready then to leave the mountains and the Colorado lifestyle. So I started looking really hard at Denver ended up going to um, a company called Bill Barrett. At that time, I was the lead completions engineer for their Uinta Basin asset. And just, you know, perfect timing, right, for a complete shitstorm. I get there uh, in August of 2014. and that's when I started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm the newest guy on the team. uh, If you don't know much about the Uinta Basin, I mean, it's like, break-evens out there are in the $50, $60 $50, $60 a barrel range. So you've got to have Ugh. at least $80 to $90, dollars a barrel um, out there because it's like I could sit here and list everything that, that makes it so expensive to operate out there. But um, yeah, newest guy on the team, really bad break evens. Uh, needless to say, all lasted about 15 months there before they divested the whole asset and got rid of everybody involved with it.
1: Yeah. So that <laughs> was the
2: yeah, <laughs> I and so then, that was and then fun,
0: right? So, right, so yeah, yeah, so
1: then, so Bill Barrett's like, "Hey, sorry, it's early 2016. Good news for you, young man, though. No, oil's twenty six dollars a barrel. So, why don't you go uh find yourself another job?" And you did.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's one of those kind of career defining moments that everybody in the oil field, I think, eventually has to go through, right? Like it's February of 2015. At that point, I've been out of work for three months. um few interviews here and there, nothing really stuck, and I had one interview um, with a private equity company and they kind of ghosted me for two weeks after that. So I wasn't thinking anything was going to come after it. Yeah, right. And then um, they gave me a call on a Thursday and they were like, hey, we've got a job for you. It's a production engineer for our our Delaware asset. Um, only we're going to need you to be in in Midland. This was a Thursday. And I was like, I'll see you Monday. So I <laughs> literally packed up my car. Uh, lined up a place to live, like basically over the weekend and um, moved down and started work that Monday. So th- those are the things you just have to do in this industry, right? Mm. Well, I'll tell the you truth. what,
0: though, in 2014, you <laughs> wouldn't have been able to line up a place to live in one day. That that was... That <laughs> Luckily, I had a uh, a
2: good friend of mine All uh, growing up, you know, all the way from middle school through high school. His little brother was a petroleum engineer, Worked yeah. out there and, and um, had a three-bedroom house to himself. So I uh, was able to, you know, offer him a fair price for that room and was able to move in very quickly. So that was, uh, you know, a lifesaver because, yeah, one-bedroom apartments at that time were $1,600, $1,700 a month. Holy cow. What? Holy cow.
1: From Midland. Well, I mean, you can make a lot of money there, so I guess there's that. But, I mean, come on, man. It's Midland. And then, no offense I mean- to anybody from Midland listening. It's just, you know, that price point, that's, that's expensive. It's expensive.
2: It, it just goes to show like the simple fundamentals of supply and demand, right? I mean, yeah. there is a massive demand for housing. Nobody, if you're there for three to six months or 12 months, you're not going to buy a house. So you're going to rent, you're going to pay a premium for that, right?
0: So does uh, this the yeah. uh, 11th month, 11 month uh, payout that, or, or at least uh, exit that Jeremy referred to at the beginning?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it was just kind of, um, you know, it's funny, the ups and downs of this industry, it's going to probably be a theme of this whole recording. But, um, you know, you go from three months of, of no work and, you know, you watch your your paycheck or you, sorry, your savings are slowly dwindling. And And that's a lesson that we could talk about later when we get into the real estate portion of what I'm doing now. Yeah. But, yeah, I was watching my savings dwindle down. I I thought I had every, all my ducks in a row, had these great investments and stuff like that. The problem was I had them in the wrong wrong investment vehicle. Mm-hmm. I had them all in the stock market. So I'm sitting here when I'm out of work, I'm selling stocks. I'm getting hit with capital gains taxes just yeah. to keep the lights on. Yeah. Versus, um, you know, what I learned later about real estate and passive income and having, uh, you know, non-correlated streams of cash flow that can come in and and cover you when times are bad and you have to set that up when times are good. And we'll, I'm sure get into that later, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's when I first learned that lesson. And then just the sheer ups and downs, I went from, uh, you know, three months out of work watching everything dwindle down to 11 months later, we sell this asset for $1.6 billion on the exit. And, um, you know, I didn't have any real equity in the deal, but they certainly made it worth my time to move to Midland for 11 months. Um, and, it's just funny, like the ups and downs, right? It's like extreme low to extreme high. And then you got to find a way to balance that out. And that's, that's what I'm doing today.
1: That Yeah. Well, I want to jump into that in, in, in just a minute, because that I think the whole aeris Kimmeridge, very, very quick exit. That's what brought you to PDC, right? And ultimately back to Denver. Um, yeah, so right. I actually did, Tim, I did some business with them, the aeris guys. Um, obviously fast-moving organization, right? They pick up some leaseholds, they drill a few wells, they prove it out, and then boom, PDC says we we like it and I think has actually had some success with uh, with that acreage. But um, for you, right, then you're going from, okay, well, you're going back to Denver, but you're going this time to a bigger company that's multi-basin. What was, you know, coming from a a PE-backed startup by Kimmeridge, what was that transition like? Not only just, okay, I just moved here from Denver. Is it, hell yeah, now I get to go back. I already got a house there. Or was it, um, wow, I thought I could be at this company for a few years.
2: Yeah, no, um, definitely I was excited to get back to Denver, but also still work in the same asset with the same people that I've been cultivating those relationships over the past year with. So that was great. Um, PDC has a really great culture. It's a fantastic place to work. Like all the people I work with are great um so that was good and then you know the flip side of that is like aris the private equity you know we had 20 people doing the work of what would it take a normal company of like 150 right so um there was a lot of things that didn't necessarily fit into the wheelhouse of a production engineer that you just had to do because you had to do it and it had to get done really fast you know so i was doing pipeline work i was doing some uh some land work and stuff like that and um it all it all ended up working out, you know, it was definitely a uh, much higher stakes, like boom or bust feeling at the private equity, like we could sell for 1.6 billion, or we could flame out and go to nothing like, you know, the 11 other companies uh, that have acreage right next to us that literally did that, um, versus us getting the timing right and, and getting that good exit.
1: Yeah, threading a needle for sure. Um, but a lot of people have gone on. Right. I think Marty Meisner was was over there. That was my original contact at Aris. I think he has his own company now. Right. He's got his own. Uh, yeah. yeah. Of he, kinda,
2: he made the choice, you know, after after working at the private equity and, and he had worked for corporations for many years and right. he was uh, further along in his career than I was. He was perfectly happy uh, no. passing up the opportunity to work for another corporation Um, and it's really like, it's nothing against PDC. It's just that he wanted to work for himself and he knew that he could, uh, have a lot of, a lot of growth with that track record after, uh, building Eris in the, in the Permian.
1: Yeah. Well, it was, it was the experience with that company that really showed me how things get bought in the field because I had sold some iPad based field data capture products to, I don't know who, uh, Concho or somebody else out there in West Texas hunt. And it was right next to uh, an heiress lease, so it hit Marty's radar. Somebody else's, and they're like, "Hey, what's that? You got like an electronic grease sheet thing?" It's like, "Yeah, it's an iPad, and you punch information into it. You don't have to bring your handwritten, you know, grease sheet to the doghouse to get it right typed up." They're like, "Wait, where do we order that?" So it was the yeah, first was time like, I ever yeah. got like a call from a random West Texas number, like, "Hey, so I want to put it in order for your like, you, you want to put it in order." Okay. Yeah, you didn't even uh, have to sell anything. <laughs> I, this never happened before. Okay. Yeah, sure. We. I can take your order, sir. But I mean, you could just <laughs> okay. tell you guys are like that. We see that. It works. What does it cost? Let's go. Right. Not every operator works that way, but when you're that lean, you
2: can. That 100%. And that's what I was going to get at is like, we could make that decision in a matter of hours. And yeah, uh, the person making that decision has the authority to do so versus uh, going through committee, and I'm not saying like like PDC is not at a size where we have a lot of bureaucracy by any means, but I see it at other companies where um, you know there's a lot of red tape and, and bureaucracy you got to go through to make a simple decision like that. Whereas at a private equity, it's fantastic in that sense that. You know, you see something, you want it, pull the trigger, you can justify it to whoever's going to come down on you. If it doesn't work out, then uh, th- by that same token, you do have a lot more responsibility Oh yeah. Uh, if if things do go wrong, right? But, you know, it,
0: it, that's the thing about the great thing about working at a small, fast growing company is, hey, don't bring me a problem. Bring me a solution. You yeah. got a problem. Go solve it. We'll worry about we'll worry about it later.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Ask for forgiveness. Um, so so you're it brings you back to Denver. Now I want to learn a little bit about the 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 rigs to real estate. You have a podcast, right? Yes. You got a podcast, and you have obviously sort of a system where you help people in the oil field maybe diversify their income, provide somewhat of a safety net for the ups and downs of of the cyclical space. So you want to dive into what you got
2: going with uh rigs to real estate? Yeah, like I said, I mean it all ties back to those lessons I learned when I was out of work for those couple months. Um and selling stocks getting hit with taxes, I was like, there's got to be a better way and and I figured it out several years later. It's one of those things where like you're like, yeah, I've got to do something about this, and then you get busy and, and sidetracked and everything like that. but um you know, late two thousand eighteen, I was starting to really think like, hey, the good times aren't gonna last and and obviously they didn't in hindsight, but I started thinking like there's got to be a better way that I could have um, a reliable stream of of passive income that doesn't distract me away from my w-2 job uh, it's got to have tax benefits and it's got to appreciate over time and be a solid investment and also i didn't want it tied to commodity prices in any way and i wanted it to be something that that people physically need and housing fit every single bill of that right so it's got tax benefits it's got Passive uh, cash flow if you do your numbers right and and select the market, right? And we can get into that later. But um, And it also appreciates over time and it can be relatively passive if you want it to be. So uh, I jumped headfirst into that, got into single family rentals, picked a market. um, And and that's kind of one of the secrets that I tell people is you don't have to invest directly in your backyard. You know, in Denver, a $600,000 house rents for two grand a month. Like those numbers do not work. Versus I found a market in Fort Worth, Texas, where I could have that uh, same house that would generate, you know, $1,400 a month in rent and I pay 110000 for it, you know. And so those are the type of numbers that you can start to work. However, uh, when I got into single family, I started realizing that it wasn't going to scale to meet my needs. I had certain income goals and certain timelines that I wanted to meet. And single family is fantastic uh, to get started, get your feet wet, grind your teeth a little bit. But for the busy oil and gas professional and especially like the higher net worth, uh, busy oil and gas professional, I say that because if you have a higher net worth, you're going to have higher cash flow goals. Um, typically, I say if, if you have a cash flow goal and you divide it by 300 bucks a month per door, and that's more than 12 to 15 doors, you need to start looking at multifamily. And that's the realization that I eventually came to was that multifamily could scale to, to meet my needs. You know. Um, basically it didn't take any more work to close on a 20 unit apartment building than it does on, um, a single family house, but you get 20 doors for that same amount of, of work. So, um, kind of fast forward to today, you know, I have about 2000 units under, um, in that I'm a general partner on 2000 units. Congratulations, man. That's,
1: That's big time.
2: And that's obviously like a a very fast forward. There's a lot of growth and and stuff that happens in between there. And and I talk about that a lot on the show. You know, I'm very, I'm an open book about what it took to get to where I was. And it's a very simple formula that you can follow and it's repeatable. Um, But the problem is a lot of people just don't know about it. And they get intimidated by what they don't know. And so, you know, 2020 rolls around March, uh, April, 2020. And I'm watching friends, family, colleagues that I've known for 10 years in this industry get let go and they don't have any other options. And like their whole identity was wrapped up in their job. And I was like, man, I wish there was a way that I could just help these people and teach them, you know, what I did. And I was Hmm. like, well, duh, just like start a podcast, start a blog, like tell people what I did and also have other people on the show uh, that have had success in real estate and using that to smooth out the ups and downs of the oil and gas industry. And that's where Riggs to Real Estate was born.
1: Hmm. That's good stuff, man. How so how many how many episodes have you done to this point?
2: We've got about fifty-five right now. Hmm, nice. Um, I'm putting like putting a bank together. Um, you know, I haven't released an episode in a few weeks, but uh putting a bank together and we'll get consistent again after that. So yeah, a lot of it some some are just me. Some I'm interviewing other oil and gas professionals hmm. who have real estate investments and everything like that, and others are like you know, I've had an Amazon best-selling author economist on. Uh, I have Jay Parsons coming on in a week, who is the chief economist for RealPage, you know, billion dollar company that handles everybody's uh, uh, rent rolls and everything like that. So I'm really excited right. to have him on. So just a, a full gamut. And then I've also had people on who uh, haven't even bought their first house yet, but they want to talk about the process of what they do, what they've done to get to that point. You know, hmm. so it's it's a wide range. And the whole point is just like, let's get talking about this and figure out, you know, what works to help us smooth out the, uh, the ups and downs, the boomer bust of this industry.
0: Good for you, man. So are you brokering or, I mean, how, I mean, I guess I just, you're teaching other people how to do some of this stuff, but I guess, so what's in it for you personally, I mean, obviously you've got 2000 units and so you're making you're you've got that happening. So is it, yeah. are you brokering for other people to help them get in or how does that work? No, no, I mean,
2: Rick's real estate is like one hundred percent me just wanting to give back to the oil and gas community. um This is a community that I love and has treated me very well over the years, so it is me just really wanting to give back and help other people out um as far as like do I gain anything from it? You know some people they want to invest passively in these big apartment buildings and I can help set those connections up and everything like that. um really, what I gain from it is just knowing that. If I help one person uh you know be better prepared for the next downturn, then I'm gonna be all for that right and it, you start out with kind of these selfish goals you know I wanted to have passive income from my family, I wanted to be them to be taken care of and my bills to be paid if I lost my income overnight, and once you reach those goals, you kind of sit back and you say, "Huh, well, what can I do next?" you know and there's always the answer of like, well, let's make more money, right but you reach a point where um." I think you you really start to think like, okay, if more money doesn't make me happy, what will? And and helping people is really the answer for that for me.
1: Really cool. Well, I hope to get there someday. Even though you're ten years younger than me, you've already gotten there, (laughs) and I haven't. I'm jealous, but at the same time, I admire your effort. No, seriously, you're you're doing really good stuff, and and uh, you were highly recommended for me. Um, You know, very polished for for what you're doing. And and personally, I I appreciate that. You know, I think there's there's a place to charge for services and there's a place to offer kind of insights for free based on experience. And and I really like that you're doing that.
0: So, you know, obviously you started side hustling in high school when you're, you know, getting off at one o'clock and going to work and do all those things. So it was always, always in there to have that, that little nugget of, Hey, I'm going to go do some other stuff on the side. Uh, the, I guess the conflict I'm I'm curious and and Jeremy knows this but I've kind of started my own other thing yeah. and I'm not going to mention it on the oh, podcast Come Oh man. Uh, hold also, on. It's exciting. Or maybe I will. I will. hold on. Just no, let me go. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, let I'll come at the end of this little piece. All right. So I'm wondering about the balance between obviously owning 2000 units does take some of your time on a weekly mm-hmm. basis and clearly your W2 at PDC I guess uh obviously takes a good portion of the rest of your time. What is the balance? How can you tell, you know, if you're advising a guy like me who wants to get into real estate or own a bunch of units, what is that balance you have to be able to strike? I think there's a a
2: couple facets to the answer of that question. Number one, you've got to find something that you're passionate about to where it doesn't feel like work. You know, I come home from a W-2 and if I have to get on a call with an investor or an asset management call or talk to our construction guy, that doesn't feel like work to me. I really love doing that. Right. So number one, find something that you're passionate about. Um, Number two, people have a lot more time, um, non-productive, like NPT, if you want to use a, uh, um, a, uh, yeah, something from the industry, but it's funny. there's a lot of time in your, your afternoons, in your mornings, uh, your weekends, right? Like don't, use the weekend to escape the life you have, like use the weekend to create the life that you want. And that's, if you have that kind of motivation and it's something that doesn't feel like work to you, then you, you'll be astonished at what you can accomplish on the side. Right. And and I set very clear boundaries and um, you know, I have a lot of respect for my W2 job and I love this industry. That's a question I'm sure you guys were, were waiting to ask uh, a lot of people ask me that they're like, why do you even work in the oil and gas industry anymore? And really it boils down to like, I love what I do. I love the people in oil and gas to me, real estate was not, um, like my ticket out of the industry, you know, or my ticket out of the oil and gas industry to me, real estate was like, I'm going to hedge my bet and have some mm. passive income and a track record that if I don't have a choice, you know, one day, whether I get wow. to stay in the oil and gas industry or not, that at least I have set up. Right. And again, it's not like like real estate isn't the end all be all and I'll say this on the show a lot. Like um my big thing is fall in love with finding a solution to the problem. Don't fall in love with an individual solution cuz solutions come and go, right? Like real estate could come and go. Um solutions come and go. You've got to fall in love with finding a solution to that problem. And the problem we all have is the boomer bust nature of this industry. It hasn't changed for you know, you talk to guys that have been in the industry for 30 years plus, and they had guys that were when they first broke out, 30 year hands telling them, like, hey, get ready for it, save up for it, and nobody does. You know, you still right. drive through Midland, and there's like a Denali with a Malibu wake setter in front of a forty thousand dollar house, and you're like, where are your priorities, sir? You know, uh, <laughs> none of it's paid for, you know. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, yeah. so, yeah. um, well, it's interesting I, week, I, since I teased it a little bit, so yeah, I don't. Seven, well, 2012, 13. I started looking at franchises just for fun because a friend of mine had done it, and again as a hedge, didn't pull the trigger, didn't have the guts. Uh, did it again in 2015, just for again, really just kind of putting my toe in the water. And then when the before before COVID even started, I was I started entertaining the franchise consultants again. And, you know, lo and behold, I just said, you know, this is a good time to go ahead and let's let's find something that will be some sort of protection um, that doesn't take me away from my W-2. And uh, so I've gone and done that. I pulled the trigger. I've told uh, Jeremy about it a little bit. I probably won't, since I haven't actually opened the retail establishment yet, I'm not going to mention it yet. But it's, you know, aimed at kids and and fitness and and things like that. So I think it's, it, you know, it's a good you, you, you're you located in the right place. It's, it's going to work out well, but similar to what you're talking about, it's going to be something I can get behind. It's going to be fun. And um, I think there's a lot of people in the oil and gas industry, certainly all the franchise consultants come April of 2020, started reaching out to oil and gas executives everywhere. And yeah, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of guys like me
2: who went out and did it. Yeah. Well, and I love what you said there. And And something that I want to kind of key in on there is, A lot of people aren't willing to take the risk to start another venture or a side business or something like that. But what I say to them is like, you tell me what's riskier. You know, you wake up five years from today and you're still stuck with the same problems, or you took a risk and bet on yourself five years ago, and who knows where it could go? I mean, you're 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 not going to get it right the first time, you know. But the point is, you're you're taking actionable steps in the right direction and you'll figure it out as you go. And you also find that along the road, it's super, super fulfilling and enjoyable. Uh, humans are like basically created to solve problems. And if you're not doing that, if you're not growing as a person, um, then, you know, you're, you're sitting stagnant and tell me what's riskier, you know?
1: I, I mean, I, I like that approach. And the way that I like to, to put it is this, no mo money, no mo problems, no money, <laughs> no, no money, Way more problems. Way
2: more problems. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it comes back to, you know, you asked, like, do I get any money off the Riggs Real Estate podcast? It's like, no, that is fulfilling for me in a different way. Because um, you start to realize, you know, money doesn't solve all your problems. And the people who chase the almighty dollar to the day they die, you know, they die typically lonely and miserable. So you got to enjoy the journey the whole time. Oh, there you
1: go. Indeed, man. That was, that was a great way to close it down. My man, Colin Plackey, PDC production engineer, also rigs to real estate. Where can people find your podcast and and follow you and all that good stuff?
2: Yeah. So the rigs to real estate podcast, you know, anywhere where you consume your, wherever you're listening to this right now, you can find us. So just search rigs to real estate podcasts, on iTunes, Spotify, all the big names there. Uh, I have a big presence on LinkedIn. I'm always posting what I think is valuable content. It seems to get good uh, feedback from from people in the yeah, industry. It's so good stuff. It's good stuff. I'm always always willing to help anyone that wants to get started, whether it's real estate or not. Like I said, fall in love with finding solution to the problem, not necessarily an individual solution. So do reach out to me. I have a lot of content out there to help people get started in real estate. You know, selecting your market. If you want to go the passive route, we can talk about that hmm. um, because it's a fantastic way for busy professionals to get their feet wet and kind of learn while you earn. And it goes back to what I described earlier. If You've got to find a, something that you're passionate about and you may find you're not passionate about real estate, but if you made a passive investment, you're at least going to make good money on your, uh, or good returns on your investment. And you can learn whether or not you have a passion for it and, and, and get a kind of insider view on the industry at the same time. So yeah, reach out to me. I'm happy to help any and everyone that, that, uh, reaches out.
1: Appreciate that, my man. Thanks for coming on, Colin. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Enjoyed it. See you later. Bye.